0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all.
1: Let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving if he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider <laughs> enters. He is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then brothers, when you come together, let each, uh, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, Let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be kept silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, or should acknowledge that, uh, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order.
0: When I was back in high school, my youth group had a weekend away on the topic of spiritual gifts. During one of the sessions, we were asked if anyone had a tongue that they would like to share. There was a period of silence before our guest speaker volunteered. He then spoke with words that I didn't understand. I don't know all the languages of the world, but I didn't recognize it as sounding like any human language. After that, there was the invitation if anyone had the word of interpretation another pause and then one of my friends a couple of years older than me at school shared some words of christian encouragement that he said were the interpretation of the tongue this was my first experience with tongues being spoken and it was both powerful and formative and we would just read and worked through these words in 1 corinthians 12 to 14 and then we'd seen this take place and while we, like you, may still have many unanswered questions, the experience was suggested to explain the words of the Scriptures. They were a demonstration of what tongues and interpretation was all about. Now, you may have had a similar experience. You may have spoken in tongues, or been part of a church, or a camp, or a conference where tongues have been spoken, where interpretation has been given, or maybe you've just heard about it. Through friends, through family, uh, through other sources. For all of us, whether with speaking in tongues or in any other area of life, we have experiences that we bring as presuppositions to the Scriptures. In and of itself, that isn't a bad thing. The Bible speaks truth about reality in our world, and so we expect that our experiences will resonate with or interact with the things that we read in the Bible. But we also need to be aware of it, because, well our experiences aren't always as clear or as authoritative as we may first think. As a simple illustration, a few years ago, I got to visit my dad's old high school. As we walked around, he showed us a water bubbler. That was quite an ornate one. It had a statue behind it. And he went up to the statue and he pressed the nose of the statue and he had a drink. I thought that looked pretty cool. So I went up and I pressed the nose of the statue, but no water came out. So he went up and he showed us again how it worked. My siblings had to go, but we couldn't make water come out. You see, we were there. We were eyewitnesses to what took place. We experienced it. We used this our powers of reason and logic and understanding to work out that you press the nose and water comes out. But we'd misunderstood something crucial. We hadn't seen everything. So my dad explained that as you press the nose of the statue, you put your foot on a little lever on the ground and that makes the water come out. The nose was irrelevant. Now, that's not just to show that, you know, you can be deceived by your father and there's fun tricks to play (laughs) at old schools. But it's a demonstration that when we see something, even with our own eyes, when we experience it and use our powers of rational understanding, we don't always get things right. We don't always understand the truth as we should. And I want to suggest that's particularly significant in our current climate, where, well, our personal experiences, our personal feelings kind of given the utmost value when it comes to determining what is true, at least for myself. And others have no right to speak into, let alone disagree with, what you feel and experience to be true for yourself. Now, many of you may have come across this diagram before. Uh, it's come out at different points in time through our ministry. Uh, this quadrilateral is kind of a way to understand the different sources of truth and knowledge and understanding in our world. Uh, we draw upon God's divine revelation in the scriptures, in the Bible. Uh, we also use our faculties of reason and thinking and deduction. We experience things and that gives us a, a kind of a general pattern of how things work and what to expect. And then there's institutions or tradition, ways of you know, teaching and understanding the world that have been passed on and kind of become part of the way that our society works. Now, all of these... Are required and they're part of our everyday life and experience to learn to grow to act and to behave but you probably also realize that they're not all equal I mean historically the kind of priority that's given to each one of these does change if you think back to the enlightenment in the 18th century reason was the king when you wanted to work out what was true and right as the powers of science and deduction and and philosophical argument that was what dominated. That was what modernism was really about. We've moved on from there, at least you know, intellectually we say, uh, to the, the kind of post-modernism where experience kind of is the trump card. This is our current society where you make yourself, you define yourself. Truth is not absolute, truth is subjective and relative based on your own experience, based on whatever you feel. But even through the different kind of social climates and the different kind of sways of thinking, uh, Christians have held that the Bible is the ultimate authority when it comes to working out what is true, uh, that shapes, well, our reason, our experience, even what institutions and tradition teaches us. Uh, But it's not just kind of the biggest, it kind of shapes the way that we draw upon these other truths. Uh, And so uh, Tony Payne was suggesting earlier in the year, that the Bible is kind of the lens through which we view all these other sources of authority and information. Uh, it is not only the one that rules over them all, it helps us to rightly make sense of reason and institution and experience. And that is significant every time we open up the Bible, but I want to suggest it's particularly significant when it comes to trying to understand Christian tongues and prophecy. Often with these things we will bring our experiences Uh, our expectations, the things that we've heard to the scriptures, and they kind of are the grid through which we read and try and make sense of these passages. Uh, For some of us, these passages are really significant. It's pretty personal. It's about your relationship with God and the authenticity of your faith. Uh, For others of us, it feels more detached and we can be tempted to disregard or dismiss arguments somewhat flippantly. Wherever you fit in your own experiences, my hope is that today we can come to see what the Bible has to say. To try and understand the truth of what God's Word teaches us about tongues and prophecy and what it looks like to gather as God's people and express these things. And then to try and understand our experiences in light of this, not the other way around. So we're at point two, a foreign sounding church. Now, while many of us have experience and exposure to tongues and prophecy, I want to suggest that reading chapter 14 probably felt and sounded pretty foreign to most of us. I take it most of our churches probably don't have a segment that happens most weeks where there is tongue speaking, interpretation, or prophecy. Or if your church does have these things regularly, I wonder if it actually looks like this description that we have in 1 Corinthians 14. So first thing, we need to try and work out what's going on in this foreign church context. I think the first step is to try and make sense of what are tongues and what are prophecy. Then we need to see what it looked look like for them, and then we need to think about what that means for us. Uh, and that first step to try and make sense of tongues and prophecy, uh, is kind of the biggest and the trickiest one. So if you're finding that a bit dense, well, we'll move on from that in time. But well, how do we make sense of tongues and prophecy? One of the issues we face is the Bible doesn't have heaps to say about it. Uh, When you think about tongues, chapters 12 to 14, and chapter 14 in particular of 1 Corinthians, it's the longest sustained treatment of tongues in the Bible. It also features significantly in Acts chapter 2, and then really briefly in Acts chapters 10 and 19. So what is tongues all about? Uh, Well, it's worth observing that in other contexts, tongues kind of just refers to different languages. And so in Acts chapter two, we're told that you've got all these different nationalities, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, many different nations, as well as visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And on the day of Pentecost, they say we hear them telling in our own tongues. That's the, the languages of all those different nations. And they're telling about the mighty works of God or similarly the same Greek word turns up in Revelation chapter 7 when we get this glimpse of the the glorious heavenly gathering of God's people Uh, there's this multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages or tongues and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb the Lord Jesus Christ and they're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands they cry out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, when we're thinking tongues, we're thinking languages. And it's often used to refer to human languages. And that's probably a pretty good place to start because in Acts chapter 2, the first time we see people speaking in tongues, they're speaking in other human languages. So, we see in Acts chapter 2, uh, as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples, this is what happens. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, this is a description of what took place. It's not definitive, it doesn't say everything there is, but a good foundation is to see that tongues often refers to human languages. And the first case of Spirit-empowered tongue speaking involves speaking the mighty works of God in different human languages. The next kind of plank in trying to work out what's going on here, it comes at the side of this section in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Here the framework of these kind of different manifestations of God's Spirit amongst God's people is that they come from God by His Holy Spirit and they are for the common good. That's their purpose to serve others. Uh, In the following verses down in verse 10 we see that amongst these other ways that the Spirit is manifested amongst the people of God is the ability to speak various kinds of tongues uh, as well as the interpretation of those tongues. So this is the context. These are given by God for the common good. And there's not just one tongue that the Holy Spirit can give. There are various kinds of them, a bit like the various human languages we encounter. It's kind of what we saw in Acts chapter 2. When we then come to 1 Corinthians 14 and all this kind of lands, things get a little bit interesting. There's lots of new information. So in verse 2, if you have a look, we're told that the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but God. And I take it the context makes clear that that means without translation of this tongue, no one understands him. Everyone hears him uttering mysteries in the spirit that only God can understand. And so we're told in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue that isn't made clear to the whole church, builds himself up. And I take it they build themselves up because no one else understands what they say, so it doesn't build them up. And there's something kind of affirming about knowing that God is working through you in this way to speak this language that you've never learned. But they don't even understand what they're saying. And so in verse 9 we read, If with your tongue you, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how, one, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air." And to clarify that they don't understand themselves, down in verse 13, we say, therefore, if anyone speaks in a tongue, they should pray that he may interpret. Because if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So this seems to be the Spirit empowering people to speak a language they've never learned in a way that they don't even understand. And it seems to be of no benefit to others without translation. And so in verse 27, we read, if any speak in a tongue when the church gathers together let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret well you could say translate it's the same word but if there is no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God so what's the picture that we have of tongues it is something that God enables among some people for the common good Though that's only achieved if others can understand it. It's a language that you don't understand yourself, and so it requires translation amongst God's people to build them up. Otherwise, it remains a mystery what is said. How do you put this together? Well, traditionally, there have been kind of three different ways of trying to make sense of it. This spiritual manifestation of tongues is either understood to be speaking other human languages that you've never learned, or it could be speaking divine or angelic languages, uh, I t- touched on that briefly last week if you are at the Bible Talks then. Or oh, it could be communicating mysteries to God in unidentifiable language forms. Now uh, the difference between those uh, options two and three, uh, option two is kind of going, this is a fixed language that the words carry meaning and he kind of encodes a message that can be understood. The third option is going, the words are kind of gibberish. Uh, spirit-empowered but in and of themselves, they don't really kind of communicate anything. It's kind of not repeatable. Um, but it's a, a communication between the person and God. From our brief survey of what we've seen, why don't you say hi to the person around you? Which one of these three options do you think best fits the evidence? Quick chat, see what you think. Uh, if you ever think about some of these things together, From my understanding, a lot of the common tongue speaking in churches today probably fits most neatly into that third category. Uh, It doesn't seem to be uh, a clearly identifiable language form that is being spoken. Now, there have been some kind of studies where people speaking in tongues have been recorded. They're trying to do some linguistic analysis. And at the very least, it doesn't seem to fit our kind of regular understandings uh, of what language is and how it communicates meaning. Uh, so, if we start with our experience, I think many would be opting for verse option 3, but I'm not sure that that's the best fit for the biblical evidence. Uh, I think like one significant point is that if tongues require interpretation or translation, I think that means that the tongues themselves must encode meaning in some kind of a way, as kind of a real language that you can then translate into the language of those who are gathered. If it doesn't encode any meaning then i think the interpretation is really just direct revelation i'm not sure how the interpretation is connected to the tongues so i don't think that works for the last option as a kind of brief aside in the kind of reasons space as people have done this recording of tongues they've also brought people in who have this gift of interpreting tongues and you'd expect that if the language encoded meaning then you'd end up with the same translation each time, but different interpreters give different translations. So, I'm not sure what that means for the claim to this being tongues or for it being an interpretation, but I just thought I'd put that out there for you to ponder. That's in the reason space, not in the biblical revelation space. Now, uh, from last week uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, I mentioned I'm not convinced that speaking in divine or angelic languages is ever actually recorded or expected in the Bible. Uh, But I also am not quite sure how speaking an unintelligible divine language serves the purpose of these things that the Spirit gives to the church. If they are gifts for the common good, I'm not sure how speaking a language that no one on earth understands is helping to build up the body of Christ. And so, I think the most probable option is that first option, uh, to speak other human languages. It's got the added benefit that we see it actually taking place in Acts chapter 2. And I think it's the one that can most clearly serve a function for building up the church. Uh, I think it fits the evidence in chapter 14 without interpretation there. Mysteries only made uh, only clear to God. But there is this purpose that you can actually speak to people in different backgrounds. And I wonder if in this gift there is a hint that through the gospel, through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this good news of the mighty works that God has done through Jesus' death for the sins of the world and His resurrection of the Lord of all is something that people from all tribes and tongues and languages need to hear. So I think that's uh, my best understanding of what this gift of tongues is all about. So, what about prophecy? Well, it's got the same framework. It too is a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And Paul sees that it's more desirable for the church because it's intelligible. And so in verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul exhorts the church to pursue love, really flowing out of chapter 13, and earnestly desire what is spiritual, especially that you may prophesy why because in verse 3 unlike the one speaking an untranslated tongue the one who prophesies speaks for people to people for their upbuilding for their encouragement for their consolation again and again in the chapter we're going to see that when we get together as a church words are to be clear so that people can be built up and equipped to trust god with their life and live in a way that pleases him and when we see the result of prophecy being spoken down in verse 24 it seems that we can understand a bit more about the shape of it. So verse 24, if some new person turns up to church and they hear people prophesying, the expectation is that they'll be convicted by the prophecy. They'll be called to account by the prophecy. The secrets of their heart will be disclosed by the prophecy and that will lead them to fall on their face and worship God and declare that God is really among those gathered people. Now again, this is a description But I think it shows us that these words of prophecy have got to have something to do with this central gospel message about the lordship of of Jesus Christ and his coming judgment of all that we know and think and have done. Because the response is in response to that kind of a message. To respond with repentance, to respond with faith, because you've heard something about this gospel message that has been personally applied to your life. But that happens in a corporate sense. And that's how God's people can be built up and grown. If you've been with us for a few weeks, we've had this kind of simple definition of prophecy that we've been working with. We've been talking about prophecy as communication about revelation. Now, we know God's revelation in terms of all that we need to know about ourselves and God and the world, that is complete, that is finished. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 1 that long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to the Jewish fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The final word has come in Jesus, the one whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Jesus brings God's final and definitive word, but not just the final word, the message of Jesus and what He's come to do is the the central message of the whole of the Scriptures. The prophecy in the past, the Old Testament, it's all pointing forward so that we could understand who Jesus is and what He's done. And so in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, we see that the testimony of Jesus, which I take it is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, that is the spirit of prophecy. That is what prophecy, Old and New Testament, has been focusing on and working towards It's all about this glorious gospel message. And so, what does this mean for the prophecy that we experience or come to experience amongst God's gathered people? Well, in no way is it a new divine revelation. It's not adding to the scriptures. But instead, it seems to, well, apply and communicate what God has revealed to the lives of those gathered. Not in a kind of a, a personal and detached way, like you and I are going to be best friends, or you should work in such and such a place, or you should marry this person. But in terms of applying the gospel truths to our lives, that we can live in a way that pleases God. And so I want to suggest that prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, describes the work of God's spirit to reveal gospel centered application to his people. And as we explore this, uh, there's an interesting connection that comes out between revelation and prophecy. And I take it that's not new revelation, but the revelation that we have received in the scriptures about the gospel. If you look down in chapter 14 and verse 29, uh, we see this description of how prophecy should take place in the church. Similar to what we saw with tongues just before, "...let two or three prophets speak, and the others weigh what is said." Now, for them to weigh these words of prophecy, what do they weigh it against? Personal experience, reason, logic, institution? I take it they're weighing it against the Scriptures, against the apostolic gospel that has been proclaimed. And so you expect that the prophecy is going to be connected with the gospel word, if that's what you're weighing it against. And I take it this weighing most naturally happens by or takes place by all of God's people, both women and men. As they engage in this personal and probably silent evaluation whether the application that they've heard fits with their understanding of the scriptures and applies to their lives but if you're with us a few weeks ago uh, i suggested that when it comes to vocally questioning or correcting the words of prophecy that's a place where men exercise leadership in the congregation and i think that's what verses 33 to 35 are talking about when it tells the women that they are to be silent in this part of church. But as we keep on reading from verse 29 into 30, if while one person is prophesying, we're told a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now, revelation is interesting. And I think revelation here is almost synonymous with the word prophecy. So, uh, if one is prophesying, and then someone else receives a word of prophecy, that other person takes over. But I think the word revelation reminds us that this isn't just a, a natural human thought, a result of reason and thought and experience, but it's something that's come from God. It is something that His Spirit works in God's people. And so these are the words that He wants His people to reflect on, but not with divine authority. They're still to be weighed. They're still deeply human words that should be considered and evaluated before being lived out. So they're helpful and they're from God. They need to be assessed to make sure that they really are true and right. But seeing this connection between revelation and prophecy, I think helps us to make sense of some other unusual bits in the passage. If you look down in verse 26, uh, there's this description of what happens when God's people gather together as men and women with something to share. Paul says, what then, brothers or sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, what's missing in that list? I take it as surprising that prophecy isn't there. In chapter 14, prophecy is the headline act. And no one's got a word of prophecy as you gather together. But revelation is mentioned. And I wonder if that's where prophecy is hiding in that list. God reveals revelation to his people, not in new additions to the scripture, but in how it prophetically applies to the lives of God's people. And then if we go back to verse 6, I think we can understand a bit more about the nature of prophecy in these last days. You see, in verse 6, if prophecy and revelation, we read, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking a tongue, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now, if we see that prophecy and revelation go together, it probably makes sense that teaching and knowledge also go together. And I think that's helpful because outside of this chapter, we don't actually read a whole lot about prophecy in the church. There's lots about teaching. There's lots about words of biblical truth to build people up. And in a sense, if teaching is about conveying knowledge from the scriptures, well, prophecy seems to be a God-given revelation about how that teaching is applied in the lives of God's people. They go hand in hand, but they're also distinct from one another. So, this is the, I don't know, here endeth the little dense expose of what is tongues and prophecy. Chance for you to reflect briefly together. If this is kind of what the passage seems to be saying, tongues is speaking unlearned human languages and prophecy is this spiritually revealed application of God's gospel truth. What do you think about these understandings of tongues and prophecy? Feel free to disagree, ask questions. You've got a slip. Feel free to write down your questions or ideas, and I'd love to read them and respond to them. But take 30 seconds, have a chat with those around you, uh, and then we'll think about what we do with these (laughs) meanings. Hopefully, these are conversations we can continue after the talk. Uh, What does it look like to live these things out in practice? Uh, Paul's basic argument, I think, is quite clear in chapter 14. And it's that that when God's people gather together, everything should be done in an understandable and orderly way for the building up of God's people. Uh, That applies to the use of tongues and to prophecy. But Paul seems to really want to drive home how important it is that these words are clear and understood. And so in verses 7 and 8, he uses the comparison with musical instruments, the flute, the harp, or even the bugle in the military. If these instruments don't make distinct and intelligible noises, the sound is useless. And Paul says it's like speaking in foreign tongues in the church without interpretation. And so in verse 10, there are doubtless many different human languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. And this experience of being a foreigner is not an experience of God's blessing, or inclusion in God's people. And so in verses 21 and 22, Paul goes back to Isaiah 28 to show that hearing foreign words you don't understand is an expression of God's judgment. And so in verse 21, Paul says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers. But for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers you see not being able to hear or understand highlights that you don't belong and worse still you can't respond to god's offer of forgiveness of peace of rest and that just highlights how inappropriate it is for that to be part of god's gathered people meeting together it's about belonging about being one so tongues that say that you don't belong Well, they don't belong in the gathering without interpretation. so instead, when you gather together, prophecy is far superior to untranslated tongues because it applies God's gospel word to the gathered believers. And as we started to see before, this is a real benefit to those who turn up who aren't regularly part of your gathering. So from verse 23, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, well, they i say that you're out of your mind, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see, church is the gathering of God's people where we speak God's word to one another to build one another up. But it's not a closed gathering there's the invitation and the expectation that people will visit week by week as we expect and we experience here on campus, as we hope you also expect and experience in your local churches. And for these people to come in and join the gathering, words that are clear, that talk about the glorious news that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world and has risen as the Lord of all and is coming back to judge the living and the dead and applying those truths to our lives, Well, it's what we need to hear as Christians and it's what the world needs to hear. And so these words have a profound effect even on those who visit the gathering as well as those who are regularly part of it. So friends, can I say if you are joining us today as a visitor, you are most welcome and we hope you hear that, we want you to hear these truths uh, and the foundational truth of our gathering is about the Lordship of Jesus. We want to find out more about that. On the side of our outline, there's a little checkbox that says, I want to find out more about Jesus. Second from the top, we'd love you to tick that and we'd love to catch up and help you understand more about it. And come back next week, where we're going to think even more about what these central gospel truths are all about. So that's, I guess, a word about the nature of the gathering. But it's also worth reflecting on the nature of the spiritual words that are spoken. It's well helpful to see, I think, in verses 13 to 19, that spiritual words are not words that, uh, well, somehow disembodied or detached from our minds and our human experience. God could give us a perfect download of all that we ever need to know in an instant. He's God. But he tends to work in a far more plain and human and embodied way. That growth comes from humans like you and I speaking words that are clear and intelligible that He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, and that He helps us to apply by the power of His Spirit. So verses 13 to 19 is basically saying, when you gather, use your minds to speak words that are upbuilding. You Don't expect that the Spirit of God is going to work in somehow kind of a, a detached, disembodied way. God has made us as we are, and He works through us as humans to speak and to build one another up. As we saw last week, the foundation for how this is to be done in love, out of concern for God and others. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there's some limitations on how tongues and prophecies are spoken. There's a limit to the number. There's the requirement that it is interpreted or weighed. And if someone's going to disagree with the word of prophecy, well, that's something that the men are to lead in. Uh, if you have more questions about the second half or the last third of the passage, again, we'll have to chat some more, but we we'll chatted a bit about that in Flex Week. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said in this passage, and no doubt you have many questions. But I'm keen for us to try briefly to share some words of prophetic application with one another. So, your first opportunity is to turn to the person next to you and share what implications of these truths you see for us and for our churches. And I'd love you to seek to prophesy to one another as God helps you to understand what these words mean for our lives. Uh, We will hopefully have time for two or perhaps three, to speak, to encourage us all if you're feeling bold and can edify us in that way, speaking in love for the building up of others. And I encourage you to weigh that, but we won't do that publicly. It's a safe space. So, chat with those around you, think about how God is helping us to apply these words, and I'll also share some reflections. You've got a whole minute, luxury. As you've shared some of the implications, would anyone like to encourage us in love with others discerning whether this is going to be helpful for you, what are some implications that God might have been revealing to you from this passage? Would anyone like to share? Yeah, thank you. Really helpful. We want to be speaking words that everyone can understand uh, in church, at the Bible talks, as well as in Bible studies, we gather as God's people. Thank you. It's really interesting, isn't it? How do we love and include those from different backgrounds in a way that They can understand God's truths in their own tongue. Maybe it's a different translation of the sermon that they work with. Uh, There's a church uh, that we partner with that does that. They translate the sermon beforehand in advance, and so others can read along in their own tongue while it's being preached in English. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure there are others. We've got two or three, but I think we've only got time for two. Uh, It'd be great to keep on sharing what some of these implications are together, and it's great to be able to encourage one another. A few brief reflections from me. The tongues that God gives his people, different human languages that you don't understand yourself, uh, if that is a gift, it's to be used with translation. By extension, uh, I want to suggest that communal tongue speaking, where everyone prays or sings in tongues at the same time, is not a way that God desires for his body to be built up. I don't think that seems to be an appropriate application of 1 Corinthians 14. I want to suggest that speaking in a non-human language in church is probably unlikely to benefit the church. And while it's not a particular expression of this spiritual manifestation of tongues, I think it's a clear implication that even if known human languages, known to the speaker, well they shouldn't be spoken in church without interpretation if the majority of the church doesn't understand what they mean. So that may apply to say, you know, conducting the the Roman Catholic Mass in Latin if most people who are gathered don't understand the words that are spoken, or even for prayers or other parts of liturgy or song to be spoken perhaps in a traditional language that most people gathered don't know. I think translations required if it's going to build the body. I think Sheena's point is really interesting. Uh, we don't quite have time to explore it, but how do we welcome people from all different backgrounds and teach God's truth in a way that they can clearly understand? Is it different translations? Is it different language Bible study groups? How do we help everyone to grasp these truths in a way that is welcoming of all and clear for all? I think there's also real value and godly provision in hearing different people's God-given applications and implications. I think we do a great job of this in our Bible study groups. And I think in our churches, perhaps uh, the music leader or a prayer or the service leader may reflect on some of the implications they've been struck by out of the sermon that's happened that teaching period, the the passing on of knowledge. I wonder if there could be more opportunities to hear only two or three. It's not a whole lot, but a few other voices of how these words apply in that context. Friends, God has given us his spirit and that spirit equips us in different ways to build up the body and tongues and prophecy are two of those ways, but they're to be expressed in love with clarity and order that God's people can rightly understand and live out those truths. Let's pray that we do that in our gatherings. Heavenly Father, thank you for the richness of gathering us as your people. Thank you that you've equipped each of us in different ways to serve and to build up your body. And Father, we pray that we would rightly understand these manifestations of your spirit in the tongues of other languages and the speaking of application, uh, these prophetic words that help us apply gospel truths to our lives. Father, may our gatherings be the richer for these clear and intelligible words being spoken to build up your people. And we ask that it may all be done in love for the glory and honor of your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.